0: I have, this morning I'm going to preach a different sermon, how to live for Christ in the midst of a hostile culture. And when I I did the sermon, I thought, you know, maybe I should say in different culture, but but that's not strong enough. I think there are elements, strong elements in our culture that are just hostile to the biblical message and biblical truth. Let me read an article I've been carrying around with me for months in my file by a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University named Robert George. He's been there for almost three decades as a professor of jurisprudence. It's entitled, Who Will Stand? I'm just going to read a few paragraphs, a couple of paragraphs. He says, well, the lynch mob came for the baker. The lynch mob came for the floral person. The lynch mob came for the pizza shop owner. The lynch mob came for the African-American fire chief of the once segregated Atlanta, Calvin Cochran. The lynch mob is now giddy with success And drunk on the misery and pain of its victims. It is urged on by a compliant and even gleeful media. It is reinforced in its sense of righteousness and moral superiority by the beautiful people, quote unquote, and the intellectual class. It has been joined by the big corporations who perceive their economic interest to be in joining up with the mandarins or spokesmen of cultural power. It owns one political party and has intimidated the leaders of the other into humiliating obedience. And I'm not asking which leaders will stand up, though that too would be good to know. Are there political or religious leaders who will step forward? Are there intellectual or or cultural leaders who will muster the courage to confront the mob? We have seen how swiftly the demands have moved from tolerance to compulsory Approval or approbation, a behavior historically rejected as contrary to all held dear by Western civilization and the great religions of the world. And now it is not only approval that is de- demanded, but active participation. And do you honestly think that we have now reached the end point of what will be demanded? What should we say to that? Well, it is certainly true that the political, economic, and cultural power now arrayed against people of faith and their rights and liberties is formidable. No question about it. This is David against Goliath, but then we know how that contest ended, don't we? So I, I, I agree with that, that article. I, I, and yet, I want to say quite strongly that as the people of God... The people of the resurrected Christ, we do not operate with fear. We operate with confidence. We operate with the belief that God is alive and watches over us. I, I meditate often on one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the, in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, You are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. You will not fear, hear that? You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at moon day, noonday. You will not fear. You will not fear. And, and so we do not fear. And we realize that the Lord in his, all, in his glory and goodness has called us to be salt. Now, salt preserves and it flavors. You're the salt of the earth. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 13, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the salt of the earth. And then the Lucan account says this, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored. And say, don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your passion for Christ, your belief that God uses people. Don't lose your saltiness. There's a little statement of faith that we adopt as a church. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message. Let me read a couple of statements from Article 15. It says this, all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Goes on and says later in that same statement every Christian shall seek to bring industry and government and society as a whole under the sway of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, all Christians must be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ. And his truth. That's why as a church, our purpose statement is equipping people to pursue Christ passionately to impact their culture. We've been called to be soft and light to those around us. So a little different sermon this morning. The general election is on our minds. and I'm going to make a few statements. Uh, there's something called the emotions wheel. You can Google it. It's got all this wheel, various shapes with all these emotions emanating from the center. And it's good for us men who sometimes have trouble identifying emotions. So we, lately, sir, and I, have been getting out the emotion wheel and say, what emotions, what two or three emotions do you have? And unfortunately, the emotions of hunger and football are not on the emotions wheel, but other emotions are. So the other day I was talking and we were said so what emotions do you have? And I said, well, I'm really split here. I said the two emotions I would have today are gratitude and dread/sadness. Let me explain. Gratitude, grateful for my family, my children, Grateful for my grandson. Let me tell you something. If you think you lose all objectivity with children, grands push you over the edge. I'm telling you. Grateful for my my marriage. Grateful for this wonderful church that's been so kind to us. Grateful to live in a great city. Grateful for my health. Grateful for the joy of friendship. Uh, Just... Filled with gratitude, I was with a man in our church the other day, and I was talking to him about his life and his children. He says, "You know, right now, he says we're in such a sweet, sweet season in our family." I, I feel, I feel that way. There's another man that I dearly care for, and we'll get together occasionally for lunch, and we'll talk about how the Lord has been so good to us. And he will invariably reach out and grab my arm, and he will quote Psalm 16. He will say, "You know, the lines have fallen for us in." pleasant places. We have a beautiful inheritance. And he's right. I say, Lord, I am undeserving of the daily bread, the grace, the mercy of the cross, the forgiveness of sin. I'm I'm unworthy. So I I really am. I am filled with gratitude. But also, I'm filled with a sense of of dread and sadness. I'm I'm filled with a sense of (laughs) Sadness in that, in our binary political system with just two parties, really, one party, as we approach Tuesday, is vehemently pro choice. The Democrat Party has gone from a party, according to Bill Clinton, where he wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare, to now a party that really celebrates abortion. The vice presidential candidate on the 100th anniversary of Planned Parenthood, who who says he's a conservative Catholic who is personally opposed to abortion but supports it legally, he he tweeted out, quote, "Uh, congratulations to Planned Parenthood on 100 years. I am proud to stand with you, close quote, which I found to be incredibly discouraging. Cecil Richards, the president of of Planned Parenthood, whose mother was Ann Richards, who was defeated in the gubernatorial race by George W. Bush years ago. Cecil Richards says, quote, For 100 years, Planned Parenthood has allowed people to live out their dreams, dreams, and largely because women can now access birth control and legal abortion, close quote. That is a lie. Dreams are not achieved by denying the reality of life in the womb. Dreams are not achieved by seeing the powerful ability, powerful ability, of a woman's body to bring life into the world as a disease to be eradicated or the tiny life once conceived as a cancer to be cut out. So says an editorial in the National Review uh, abortion takes a life. Last year, Planned Parenthood was responsible for 320,000 abortions in America. Their annual budget is $1.3 billion. Over half their budget comes from taxpayer dollars from you and me. They talk about being an adoption agency, but for every adoption of Planned Parenthood, there are 160 abortions. And in this particular party, there's no ro- robust debate regarding the sanctity of life. There's no conflictual voice or minority voice that can be heard. Several years ago, before he died in the year 2000, there was a governor named Bob Casey who for years was a champion for the pro-life movement. He was the governor of Pennsylvania. It's a pretty big state. And Bob Casey wanted to bring a minority report and address the convention in the last two years or the last two conventions of his life, and he was denied access because they didn't want to have debate. This is the governor of Pennsylvania. This is a great sadness. There's a sadness also because the Baptist faith and message says that gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. I just saw a little girl that's been adopted this weekend down in the gym, a beautiful little girl. She's a girl. God assigned that to her. Gender is not something I choose at the whim of my existential moment in the fabrications of my mind. It's something that's embedded in my DNA. And I believe the sexual authority or activity, excuse me, in, according to the Bible, is to be carried out in marriage between one woman and one man. This leads to human flourishing and hope and joy and a legacy passed on to children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and laughter and uniqueness. And because it's God's law and God loves us, He wants to shepherd our souls. But it's a great sadness that one political party especially has embraced the LGBT movement without any conflict And so there's no distinction that can ever be made. It's merely a matter of the will. And this sadness, I believe, will lead to madness. And I don't want to impugn the motives of these people. Many of them are noble-hearted, gracious, and caring people. I know that. They're all made in the image of God, and they deserve respect and Christian love. There's a man named G.K. Chesterton who's a very large Brit. And he wrote incredible books. And he died in 1934-ish. And G.K. Chesterton was right ninety-eight percent of the time. He didn't like the Reformation. He didn't like Calvinists. But other than that, I found him to be pretty on, on, the, on the money. And G.K. Chesterton was a very committed Roman Catholic, and he wrote these wonderful books on the Christian faith. And one is called Orthodoxy. And Chesterton had an ongoing, running dialogue with a guy named George Bernard Shaw. You're familiar with him. Shaw was an Irish poet, playwright, thinker, who proclaimed himself to be an atheist. At one point in his life, then he claimed to, claimed to be a, a mystic. And then later in life, he said, I'm a religious follower whose religion cannot be defined. So he never really came to a point of defining God or bowing the knee to the cross, which grieved Chesterton. But Chesterton wrote this. If I had to describe Bernard Shaw, I cannot express myself more exactly than by saying that he has a heroically large and generous heart but not a heart that is in the right place, close quote. He says, listen, he says, Bernard Shaw has a large, generous, and heroic heart. He's a man of truth speaking. He's a man of courage, and he was. But he says he starts in the wrong place. If you start in the wrong place, you can't end up in the right place. So when I look around at people who, who believe that everything is the impersonal plus time plus chance, there's no oughtness to life, there's, no, there's not any real ethics, there's only mores or morals. Ethics are, 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 are timeless values, morals are what is embraced by the culture from decade to decade. So there's no ethical, it's just, it's just all happenstance morality. And when they believe that, it's, it's, I agree for them, they may be noble-hearted men and women, but they start in the wrong place. When I look at people and they say, well, just there's there's no supreme being that can be defined, there's no supreme being that has spoken, then then really sexual urges are just that. They're urges that should be satisfied and, and lived out. And the mantra they say is do no harm to other people. So as long as you can live out your life without doing harm to other people, go for it. And my response is if you operate outside of God's prescribed will, you're doing harm to yourself and to others. And so that same statement was made in a book in 1988 entitled The Twilight of a Great Civilization by a thinker named Carl F. H. Henry, a brilliant man, or a book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah, written by the rejected Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork in 1996. I have a sadness because I believe integrity and character is the core of who we should be. And by character, I mean a long sustained, observable obedience. They can be seen in the public square. And our choices, quite frankly, in this election are less than sterling. A book was written in 2001 by Peggy Noonan, who was a speechwriter for President Reagan, who had access to the president. And she said, she wrote a book called, When Character Was King, A Story of Ronald Reagan. It's a readable book. It's a wonderful little book. And she talks about the character and the integrity and the accountability and the selflessness that marked the life of Ronald Reagan. So to date, I would say both candidates, as far as observable long-term character, don't have that, and that grieves me. So I will vote Tuesday. I think it's my responsibility to vote as a Christian. I think it's my responsibility to vote for those in authority, to to pray for those in authority. I will pray for whoever is elected on Tuesday as our president-elect, and you should too. and and I confess, I do not pray for President Obama or Vice President Biden as often as I should. Because the Bible says, quite frankly, in 1 Timothy 2, pray for those who are in authority. I will vote based upon the, the party platforms of the given individuals. I will vote in part based upon the inner circle of advisors that have already been gathering around the candidates, was their vice presidents or potential cabinet people. You see, Proverbs 11:14 says, "For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. Or in the abundance of counselors, there is safety." So, so if, if you want to know what a man or a woman is like, look at who advises them. Look at who their go to people are. I tell people, man to man, the men at man to man, I said, Who are your two o'clock in the morning Waffle House friends? Because Waffle House never closes unless it's a hurricane. Because conversely, Proverbs 13, another Proverbs, verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So, so if, if I walk with wise men, I will siphon off of their wisdom. If I walk with fools who curse God and who curse reality in their hearts and who mock values and who mock the the, the ethical standards, then I too will become a fool. So I'll, I'll vote also this Tuesday because in our system of government, the president nominates Supreme Court justices who served for 30 and 40 years. I I tell people all the time that this president will nominate at least two Supreme Court justices who will be there for 40 years, who will be there 20 years after I'm dead, gone, forgotten. Long time. One party consistently through the years have had presidents who nominated men and women who are supposedly pro-life. There have been some bad miscues there like David Souter and Justice Kennedy, But basically, they do that. The other party says, we're going to vote, bring in men who believe in broad standards and the whole argument, which is nothingness. I will prayerfully vote, but hear this. I will not be voting with the same enthusiasm or joy as I did in 1980 and 1984, but I'll vote. So, church, we must be salt. We must preserve and give flavor. History, if you just say the history of 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 Western civilization, the world history is filled with examples of men and women who were salt and light, who knew Jesus, who opposed slavery, who who stood out for and and spoke against child labor, who spoke for women and the ability to to, to be treated as equals, who believed in universal education for all people, regardless of creed or or. or economic standing, who went to India and saw an aspect of, of India in Hinduism where a man who, who died and he, they set his corpse on fire and the wife was drugged and, and basically pushed on top of her husband to be burned alive as his body is consumed. And Christians went there and they said with the church that was there, we will not tolerate this, and it was outlawed. People who spoke out and, and, and built hospitals and were involved in prison reform and all this, they were salt. So, so do not lose your saltiness through cynicism or, or lethargy or despair or inactivity. Be salt. And so I come to First Peter very quickly and look at this passage. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter's written by Peter to the church around 65. And, and, and really, right after the book is written, there is a period of persecution that happens over the next 250 years or so, to the year 313. And it, it would come in waves. You know, persecution would be followed by, not persecution, then ramped up persecution, not ramped up persecution. But, but, but it, it was written... To a church that's getting ready to go into deep pathos of spirit. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 8, he's already he's talked about the husband and the wife and their relationship and how a wife should live with an unbelieving husband and how the husband should respond as a believing man to his wife. And then he says, finally, verse 8, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. So there he says, you, you, you don't curse when people curse you. You don't revile when they revile you. You you bless them. The world can curse out people. The world can revile people, but you're people of the cross. You're people who receive the Holy Spirit. And so you bless people. And then he says this: for you were called. That you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, let his lips be kept from speaking deceit, and let him turn from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and let him pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Just a few principles. Number one, we were called to bless others and to receive the blessing. He says, you bless us because to this you recall to obtain a blessing. The Lord wants to honor and bless and encourage and build us up and to give us joy and happiness and laughter in our soul. That's what the Bible says. He says, if you, if you want that, and he quotes a psalm, if you want that, he mentions four things. If you want that, then keep your tongue from that which is evil. Don't speak evil. Be very careful what you say. He says, let your lips be free from speaking deceit. Don't put others down to make yourself look good. Don't be duplicitous. Don't be arrogant. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Do that which is good and beneficial and helpful. Turn from evil. Do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. You you, you pursue people in in your broken relationships. You're a peacemaker. You're a lover. You're a a person who has a, 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 a long fuse and a short memory compared to many people who have a long memory and a very short fuse. We're gracious, we're caring, we're long-suffering. He's called us to obtain a blessing. Then he says this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the, but the, the, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The, the, the most incredible thought about the character of God, apart from his eternal Trinitarian nature and the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross and the outpouring Holy Spirit. I mean... The, the, the most incredible thought that, that, that hits me is, is this. this: in Ephesians four, I, me, you, if you're a Jesus follower, Christian, can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Just, just think about that. You you can you can because of disobedience or inactivity or or just slovenly behavior or lust or arrogance or you name it. I can grieve. The Holy Spirit who lives inside me. Wow. Eternal God. Conversely, if you read Zephaniah 3, I can cause God to rejoice and be glad. Me, little me. Little, little me. Me, 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 you. By our obedience and our love and our forgiveness and our compassion and our desire to be honoring unto the Lord can make God dance with delight. Now think about that. What a God. God watches over us to bless or to correct, or, and we can cause his face to be behind a cloud because of disobedience. It's amazing to me. I was, I was thinking about this and reading Psalm 116. It's an, it's, it's an invitation to repentance. Listen to this. This is Psalm 106, excuse me, 106. 116, yeah, 116, verse 3 and following. It's a, it's a general psalm about going through a hard time. He says, I, The snares of death compassed me about, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. And in all seriousness, some people say this may be a, a hymn sung by women after they gave birth, just a hard, hard birth. And he says, Then I called on the name of Jehovah. I said, Oh Lord, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous is our God, the one who is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Verse 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. To me, that is, that is a statement of repentance. Return, O my soul, to your rest. Because God is bountifully good. If you're, if you're in a place of darkness, and many of us are, all of us are at one time or another. If you're in a time of, 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 of halting disobedience, man, return, oh my soul, to your rest, to your peace, because God is bountiful. And so we do good. Number two, we do good. Peter asks somewhat rhetorically, "Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good or beneficial or helpful? If you're merciful, people?" Uh, Peter says, "You know, just 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 do, do good to the city, do good to the community, do good to your neighbor. And I, I, like this this Saturday, love on Charleston. Just go out, take care of homes, work on cars." we fire best whatever But just do good in the name of Jesus you know people look uh, and say people to look at us and if they're not believers you know i'm not sure about their message but man they love us i thought of people in our church i thought of think of those who work with the homeless i think of people who every week feed a group of homeless men uh, i thought of those who work in labor and love and serve in the low country pregnancy center to women and men who are in difficult pregnancies. I, I, I thought of uh, home furnishings people get nice furniture and clothes and go to other people who, who are needy and they say, well, here's some furniture and some clothes. Let us help you out. I, I, I thought of our prison ministry, a group of people who go every Monday night and lead a Bible study of prison. I, I thought about a, a, a really a fairly large group of elderly people in our church who, who are every week correspond with prisoners all over the country. I mean, literally scores and scores of prisoners and send Bibles and religious articles and books and and pray for them and let them know that they're loved by somebody. And and these these are people, that their marathons are in the rearview mirror, you know. Their 5Ks are in the rearview mirror, but they're doing it. They're doing it. I thought of people who are involved in our adoption and foster parenting, who just care for children. I thought of the opportunity we have at Christmas to give gifts to children whose mom or dad or both are in prison. And on and on and on. And I just say, do not lose your saltiness through despair or discouragement or lethargy. And then it says this. I've never really seen this until two weeks ago. I was this passage. It says this Have no fear of them. You hear that? Have, don't have fear. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And I I just stopped and I said, you know, this passage says that that I am to so honor Christ and so glory in Christ and his shepherding leadership in my life that that, that fear is swallowed up by fearlessness. Peter says, you know, don't, don't fear them. Don't, 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 don't be unsettled by them. But in your hearts, you honor Jesus as the Lord and Savior and God. And I thought, I've, I've got to worship until fear is swallowed up by fearlessness. Worship does that in my spirit. It calls me to reality and to truth. And then fourthly, I, I respond well. Verse 15, this is only done by the power of the Holy Spirit, but, but in your hearts, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, and do this with gentleness and respect. When people are in your face or or they're throwing out dispersions or untruths, you listen and you do so with gentleness and respect. There are several people that I could name and you know that are gifted at one-liners, either in a personal relationship or on the radio or talk show. They're gifted at one-liners. They're very quick on their feet. And, and, and if you're gifted in that, you can, you can do that. That's, that's no big deal. But let me tell you something. When people are, are opposed to you and they're putting you down and they're saying things that aren't true and, and they're just filled with animosity, Peter says, no, 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 no. You listen to them. They're made in the image of God. You approach all of life with a, a humility that is, that is self-suspecting. Because no one has a corner of the truth except Jesus. So, so you, you, you approach those people and you listen and you, and you do that with gentleness and respect. You speak the truth. But you do it with gentleness and respect because they're made in the image of God. And they're worthy of respect and Christian love. So, so church, I just say to us, don't lose your softness. Live for Christ. In a way that lives out the reality of First Peter three, may God have mercy upon us. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for this day and for the tender mercies of the cross, and uh, Lord, we do pray, 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 pray for our country. We we know that that. Um, their righteousness, the Bible says, exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We pray for and, uh, and local and state and national elections for men and women of, of proven integrity to be put in positions of, of power. Oh, Lord, we don't deserve it, but we pray for it. And we pray that people be put in power who have surrounded themselves with men and women, who will speak truth to them uh, and, and and point them to the reality of the eternal truths. So God, we pray and we pray earnestly. And we plead for this nation. We plead for religious freedoms and liberties and the freedom of speech and that you would protect, um, protect life, Lord. And we commit our way unto you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.